Good morning, St. John's. This is Jake Taxis coming to you from my living room, imagining all your wonderful, beautiful faces out there through this little camera lens. But nonetheless, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, I'm a chaplain at Freighter Hospital here in Milwaukee, where I live with my wife, Greta. And so I will be seeing you in person at some point, but it's always always good to to be with you even if it's through digital format which is just fine by me today's passage is from the gospel of matthew chapter 16 verses 21 through 28 so i'm going to read that and then we'll jump right in to the message for the day the holy gospel according to saint matthew from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. I remember when I was a kid maybe 11 or 12 years old, and I decided to make a frozen pizza. Now, but now where I came from, West Dallas, suburb of Milwaukee, where I came from, frozen pizza is a staple food. It's like bread. It's like the foundation of one's diet. It's what you go to first, you know. So I decided to make a pizza, and it was an evening. Um, and I remember that as I was deciding to do this, I, I heard the phone ring. My mom picked up, and by way of eavesdropping, I came to understand and came to learn that a group of my parents' friends were coming over with their kids who are about my age. They just happened to be in town, and they were going to stop by and say hi. So now I had a problem. My problem was that my pizza was baking. It wasn't done yet. It would be finished when they came over, and that means I would have to share that means I would have to give some of my long-awaited delicious pizza away to be a kind person. So that was my problem. Obviously, <clears throat> I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I didn't want to have to share this pizza. Being a kid is hard. I wanted to just enjoy my pizza on my own. So I came up with a plan. My plan was to leave the pizza in the oven while the friends came over so that it would cook and it would just be hidden. And then when they left, I would simply go 
get out my pizza and enjoy it on my own with no one around. That was my, that was my plan. Now, I wasn't the brightest bulb in the package at that time. And some say I'm still not. But that was my genius plan. So I went about it. The friends came over, hung out, talked with my parents, and my pizza continued to cook long after, you know, the 20 minutes or so were up. Long after. So, and you know the house is filling with this aroma. <laughs> Clearly something's in the oven. Clearly something is baking. But, you know, what pizza? I, I don't have a pizza here. I don't know why it smells like an Italian restaurant in here. So, when they left, my plan came to fruition and I opened up the oven and the pizza was like a crisp black casino chip. Right, and all the delicious pepperonis were little ash heaps. <laughs> the, the delicious golden Wisconsin cheddar cheese on top had become, you know, charcoal. So I, I got what I deserved. Right? I got a burnt pizza. You know, it's exactly what I deserved. But I don't mention this story as some moral lesson on the importance of sharing. You know? I don't mention this story because of the embarrassing level of greed I had achieved by the age of 12. All of that is true, right? All of that is true. I mention this because my heart had become so co-opted and captured by a mere human concern, the concern for myself and my own needs. Of course, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's needed. Self-care is important. Please don't hear me the wrong way. What I'm saying is that a mere human concern had sort of co-opted my heart and the results were a little more inhuman. They were a little less compassionate. They were a little less loving. As I read this passage this morning, and, and Jesus' words to Peter, see, this story of mine kept coming to mind. It kept, it kept throwing itself into my awareness because Jesus says to Peter, after calling him a satanic stumbling block, which is a bad day. Well, we can be clear about that. Jesus calling you a satanic stumbling block, that's a bad day in anyone's book. But Jesus says to Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Merely human concerns. The irony of our existence, and I think the brilliance of Jesus, is that the more we adopt merely human concerns, the more inhuman we become, little by little. The more we concentrate on preserving the self and pursuing our own personal goals over and against all other aims, the more likely we become the kind of people incapable of doing either. When mere human concerns become our point of living, they become our point of reference, life actually becomes slowly but surely a little less human. See, I simply wanted to protect my personal right to enjoy pizza on my own. <laughs> I wanted my freedom to enjoy pizza on my own without anyone else. I was attending to my own mere human concerns, perfectly legitimate, right? I need to eat. 
I need some alone time. I just want to eat my pizza in peace. I was simply attending to human concerns and the results were inhuman. They were a little less compassionate and a little less loving. Jesus Christ in this passage says this is exactly the kind of mere human concern that those who wish to follow him need to lose. We need to let go of these. We need to leave them at the door. See the brilliance of Jesus in this moment is this. The more we embrace and live into the concerns of God, the more deeply human we become the more we actually engage a true kind of humanity, when the concerns of God are operating in our heart, when they're permeating our soul, we become more deeply human, not less. And actually, the concerns of God, when they get in there, they blow up the original floor plan we had. And they expand our capacity for living more deeply and authentically human lives with more love, more compassion, more freedom, more peace. Peter has big plans for Jesus. Big plans. And they certainly do not involve his dying on a, on a Roman cross as a political prisoner. Right? That's not, that's not in Peter's playbook. And he comes, but here comes Jesus describing how he must suffer many things. How he must be betrayed, how he must be killed, and then what must have sounded like nonsensicality to Peter, he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus is bringing all this stuff to Peter, who has big plans for Jesus himself. And Peter pulls Jesus to the side, out of respect, because I think we are always more we're always more comfortable rebuking God in private than out in public, but that's another sermon. <laughs> Peter says to Jesus, never, Lord. This will never happen to you. Peter is conveying a legitimate and practical human concern, right? It's a mere human concern. Jesus, your being dead doesn't help us much. That's really not what we're going for here. You know, I get that you're tired. You know, I get you're exhausted. This whole savior thing must be draining for your soul. But the, the, the suffering and the dying peace, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that that might not be so encouraging to the other disciples. It might not be so uplifting for them. So let's just set that aside for now. What I think what I think will really grab people's attention is maybe a little more glory and a little less gore. Let's, let's set the dying piece to the side for now. Maybe say something about how we're going to rule with you. Hmm? Try that on. Say something about how we're going to rule alongside you while Rome is begging for mercy underneath our feet. Let's give that a shot, Jesus. And it says Jesus turned. It says he turned. And in the Greek, the sense is that he literally turns his back physically on Peter. He has to turn away from Peter. He faces the other direction. 
almost like he's revolted by the idea of refusing his purpose. Almost like the idea of, of turning his back on his people is disgusting to this Jesus. And he actually has to physically turn away from this possibility. You see, Jesus knows who this message is coming from. Get behind me, Satan. He knows where this message originates from, this temptation to turn his back on his people once and for all, to drop humanity, to let them go their own way and forget about them. Maybe to start over with an, old, an, uh, an entirely new humanity. Jesus knows this concept is coming from the pit of hell. And he says it to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get away from me. This is not my will that is done. This is my Father's will that I must go to Jerusalem and I must suffer many things that you won't suffer the worst suffering any human being could, which is separation from God. Peter, I am bringing you home. And that is going to mean pain for me. That is going to mean death for me. Do not get in the way of that with your mere human concerns. See, Jesus will not even entertain this thought. He has to physically turn away because his life is permeated with the concerns of God. It is filled with the concerns of God. And to follow this Jesus, we need to learn, we need to learn how to lose our mere human concerns and to be permeated ourselves with these concerns of God, to embrace these concerns as our own. Because the concerns of God, what are they? The concerns of God include rescuing a reckless people who cannot rescue themselves. It includes saving people from themselves. It includes adopting a lost people and bringing them home into God's family. And Jesus says, that can only come by my suffering for you in your place. And see, those are the concerns of God. And we have to lose a lot of our own faulty concerns in order to make space for a life that big. Because ironically, when those concerns are in us, when the concerns of God are operating in us, they will make us more deeply human. I love how, how Jesus says in John chapter 2, verse 25, in the New Living Translation, it says this, it says, no one needed to tell Jesus about human nature, for he knew exactly what was in the heart of a person. No one needed to tell Jesus about human nature. See, Jesus knows we are not good for ourselves. <laughs> he knows we are not good for ourselves. He knows we need to be shown what a real human life looks and feels like. We cannot think our way into flourishing. We've tried. We cannot think our way into flourishing. See, we need to let all of that go. We need to lose our way for our own good. That's the life of discipleship. We need a savior. We need a savior to show us how to lose well, how to lose those faulty concerns, how to throw those things to the side and embrace the concerns of God, which will make us more deeply human. And in doing that, 
we find the life that we can never lose. We find the fulfillment that is finally ours into eternity. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Those are Jesus' words to us. Now, every time I come across this passage, I think of a very meaningful time in my life. And that was the summer before my senior year in college here in Milwaukee. Greta, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, she was uh, serving at this beautiful ministry out in California called Young Life. Many of you will probably know that ministry. Young Life. She was operating, she was serving in the kitchen, making delicious food for, for young kids coming to a week-long retreat where, where they would be introduced to the gospel. And it was, it was such a beautiful ministry. She was out there, and I was living in Milwaukee, working at the Downer Theater, just missing her terribly. And I remember sending her two, at least two letters per day. I would write one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And when they received email out in California, when they received mail, physical letters out in California, she would get like eight of them at a time, which I think was probably a little embarrassing for her, but just conveyed my love, you know. I had to do it. So I remember that summer <clears throat> that I read a, a, a book that changed my life. It was Elizabeth Elliot's first book about her husband's life, Jim Elliot, and it was called In the Shadow of the Almighty. And so I remember reading this book, and of course, for those of you who don't know, Jim Elliot uh, was a young man from Portland. He was a, a graduate of Wheaton College in Illinois, and really strong Christian faith. And he actually went to Ecuador as a missionary because God had placed on his heart the, the need to preach the gospel to the indigenous people there. And it was one tribe in particular that he felt drawn to. And that was a tribe that was actually known to be very aggressive and actually very violent toward outsiders. But Jim Elliott and a group of, of fellow missionaries were drawn to uh, share the gospel with his people. And this was in the 50s. And Jim and his friends were actually making great progress. They were seemingly making great progress in connecting and relating to this, this group of indigenous people when, when they were tragically attacked and killed. And Jim was only 28 years old. And I remember reading this story and reading one line in his journal in particular that struck me. A few years before he was, he was killed, he wrote this, this important line. He said, Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And see, I was reading this as a very fortunate man, a very young fortunate man. I was in my early 20s, just about to finish school. I had a, a wonderful girlfriend who I intended on marrying. I had a job, I had my health. And these words of Jim Elliot cut deep to my heart. They cut me deep because I realized that that life I had at that moment, it was a life I couldn't keep in the end, right? Because it was fleeting. That life, it's always changing. It's always fleeting. And I knew I couldn't keep it. But the question I had for myself was, would I be willing to give up that life? 
to secure a life that I could actually never lose? Would I be willing, like Jim Elliott, to lay down the good things of life to pursue and to seek out and to take hold of the one who makes those things good? And I realized that I don't know if I was willing to do that. I was living my life as if the pursuit of that good life was actually going to bring me the fulfillment that I craved. But it was not the case. Jesus Christ says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And what struck me is that when he says that, Jesus does not just mean physically laying down your life. He does mean that, but he doesn't just mean that. See, Robert Mounds points out in verse 24, where Jesus says that his disciples must deny themselves, deny themselves and take up their cross. Each of those words, deny and take up, are in the Greek aorist tense, which without getting into weeds means that it's in the past tense. There's a finality to it. To deny yourself and to take up the cross has been done. The decision has been made. There's a sense of finality to that. See, the disciples have denied themselves. They have taken up their crosses. It's done. But when Jesus says, follow me, when he says, follow me, that verb is in the present tense. It's continuous. It's unending. See, the following of Jesus itself happens every day in seemingly minute ways and in deeply profound ways. Every day. It's a deeply daily losing and a daily finding. It's a daily losing and a daily finding. That is what following Jesus means. So when Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it, it's not only the willingness to lay down your life physically, it is that, but it's also the willingness to daily lose the things in our life that are death to us, to each day find and take hold of the things that are life to us, the concerns of God, that we might gain a truer life right now. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. We lose a life of control to find a life of confidence in him, trusting that he is who he says he is, right? We lose a life of worry in order to find a life of, of wonder. See, the world maybe isn't how we think it should be right now. It's clearly not how we want it to be. It's not how we think it should be. But to look at it with a sense of wonder and see how is God going to bring life out of this? Moving from a sense of worry to a life of wonder. Losing a life of frantic accumulation to find a life of assurance knowing that we are not what we own. We are not the number in our bank account. 
We are not the size of our status at work or in the community. We are deeply beloved children. And we have the assurance of being held by this man, Jesus, who will never let us go. He will never drop us. From control to confidence, from worry to wonder, from frantic accumulation to deep assurance. The Christian life is a life of letting go. It's a life of losing, but one that does not end with loss. It does not end with loss. It ends with finding the life we can actually never lose. Life with God, which can begin right now, and nothing in the world can compare. See, our lives of losing, they will look like the life of Jesus. They will include suffering. They will include pain. They will not all look the same. You'll notice that when Jesus says in our passage that some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. See, the implication there is that some will die before Jesus comes in his kingdom and some will not. The following of Jesus and the suffering that is built into that at some points will not all look the same in different lives. Discipleship is not one size fits all. It's one savior fits all. And there will be pain and there will be suffering because there was suffering in this Jesus, the one who suffers for us. And that is the one that we follow. But the end game of it all is not loss. The end game of it all is not suffering. The end game is what Bonhoeffer says in his brilliant introduction to the cost of discipleship when he says, discipleship is joy. See, that's the end game. Discipleship is being experiencing joy by being with him, the one who gives us a real and true life, the joy of living in his presence. That is the end game of discipleship. The fact that the Christian life is cross-shaped, that it has suffering built into it, does not mean that all suffering is somehow valuable or filled with purpose. No. But it does mean that all suffering in this world will one day be completely and entirely eclipsed by the beauty of Christ in you. That's what it means. That all suffering will be transformed. You know that line where, where Paul says, where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your sting? It does not mean that death doesn't hurt. Right? It means that death cannot have the life that is already in us. Death cannot have the life that is in us because the life in us is the life of our Savior. And death could not keep that Savior in the grave. And it can't keep us in the grave. All the losing we do as disciples, it's all about finding. All the letting go that we do, it's finally about holding on to a love that will never let us go, that will never abandon us, that will never forsake us. That is what our losing is about. It's about finding. Discipleship is faith in motion. It's 
Even better, it's faith in flight. You know, there's a difference between a plane waiting on a runway and a plane soaring through the sky, engaging reality, fighting with gravity, moving forward with freedom and with purpose. That is discipleship. It is faith in flight. Discipleship is a life that soars, but it's one that leaves behind the securities that we always trusted in. Because it feels very safe to have your feet firmly planted on the ground. It feels safe and comforting. It feels scary to leave that security for the air. It feels scary to leave that security for the life we were always meant to live, which is a life that soars with compassion and with love. It's a life that soars with courage. It's a life that isn't afraid to lose. Because in the losing, there is a finding. In Jesus Christ, we lose a life we cannot keep. To find a life we cannot lose. See, we have been given everything in him so that we can courageously let go of everything we thought our lives were about. We can set all of it aside. Mary Oliver has this beautiful poem called In Blackwater Woods. And she says this, she writes this striking line at the end. Mary Oliver says this, Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss. Whose other side is salvation. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Discipleship is about loving fiercely and letting go fully. We cannot keep our life safe forever. You know? We cannot keep it safe forever. We let it go into the care of the one who is compassion. And with it, we let it go of our control. We let go of our worry. We let go of this frantic accumulation. We let go of our panic. And we find incredibly a life that we cannot lose. A life of faith, hope, and love. It will include pain. It will include pain, but it will not be defined by pain. It will be defined by a person who suffered for us, died for us, and rose for us, who in all of that had us by the hand. See that night with the pizza? <laughs> As a kid, my only concern was me and my freedom. I had a mere human concern, and the results were a little less human. They were a little less compassionate. They were a little less loving. God's concern is you. So you don't need to be always and completely and totally concerned for yourself. God's concern is you. So you can love and serve without complication. And you're loving and you're serving. Don't be afraid to lose. In fact, learn how to lose well because his is the victory that has given you life. And we lose the things that are not of him 
to gain a life we can never lose. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. He will do it. May the one who lost everything to find us be praised. May that one be praised. See, we were his concern from the beginning. Now, as disciples, it's time to start letting go. To make room in our hearts for a life that we cannot lose. A life that is bigger than just our mere human concerns. It's all right here in this Jesus Christ. So let's praise the one who lost everything to find us. Amen.